You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. As always, welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. My name is Daniel Lee, or otherwise photos by DLEE. Today, we're not going to be covering as much news as last week. It's going to be more of an actual topic this time, which I think people will probably enjoy more. Uh, if you guys are happy to give me some feedback, I'd love it. I can really shape the show to see what people like and what people enjoy. So in terms of what I've been up to, once again, nothing much. Just really work and that's it. Work, come home and, you know, play games. If that, I finished Dragon Ball Z Kakarot for anyone that was interested. I have also, you know... Been shooting a little bit, like yesterday I was doing some product shots with the 32mm f1.4, my Canon lens, just to sort of get some product shots for when I do release the Sony 35mm f1.8 review. I really love the lens, uh, rendering on that lens, I definitely you know, need to use it more and get out with it more, especially in terms of anything that includes bokeh in that lens, because that lens does really really well for the price, the size and everything, but otherwise nothing really much has updated for me or for TPE. It's been pretty quiet a few weeks and now that the sunset is starting to go down a lot earlier, like today it's meant to be at 7.30pm, I'll probably start to go out a lot more. In the peak of summertime, here sunset's like 8.30, nearly 9 and I'm a bit of a grandma so I like to be home early, you know, sleep by 10 at the latest, 10.30. So if I'm out to like 9, I just can't wind down in that time. So I generally don't go out too much during the summer. I always say every winter I'm going to go out a lot more and I'm going to shoot a lot more. So hopefully this winter I actually stick to that and I do go out a lot more because, you know, I really want to get out, do my long exposures, use that 24GM a lot more as well. So maybe I can eventually do a review for that too. Now, as mentioned earlier, I'm not going to go into heaps of detail when it comes to news items. We'll just go over them, you know, in a small amount of detail, I did post with um, about both these items on the Photography Enthusiast uh, website, which will be linked in the show notes. You can find out more information of, on those posts, as well as some preview videos from YouTube channels that I generally watch and enjoy. So the first one we'll be discussing is the Fuji X-T4. So this is another camera from Fuji that, to be honest to me, like is quite appealing. Uh, just some quick specs. It has a 26.1 megapixel APS-C X-Trans CMOS sensor. So unlike a lot of other sensors that use Bayes sensors, it uses Fuji's own X-Trans, which is meant to produce better colors, which most people would agree since Fuji does have great colors. It has five axis in-body image stabilization, which is a very, very impressive thing considering you know it's an APS-C body and not that many APS-C bodies do feature IBIS. The only one that I can think of aside from the Fuji's would be uh, the Sony A6600, I believe that is the only one out of theirs that does feature IBIS. I'm not sure if the previous ones are A65 and that do, but are honestly not too big on APS-C bodies, so I can't say for certain. In terms of screen, it has a 3-inch 1.62 million dot fully articulating rear screen. To me, this is like a very, very exciting feature because, you know, I love articulating screens. Many people think they're just for video, and I'm pretty sure I've ramble on about this so many times but they are very useful stills as well it's a feature i want on so that every camera especially everyone i own they're not just for video they do have a usefulness for stills as well it also has 
30 FPS in electronic shutter and 15 in mechanical, which, you know, is very, very impressive considering the A9 does 20 in silent shutter, I believe. Obviously, I don't know what tech goes into it to be able to do that and how well it performs because the FPS is only as good as the AF is. So if the AF can keep up and the AF delivers and actually hits and nails the shot every single time, then that will be very impressive. And I'm sure sports shooters would you know, be able to make some really great images with this Fuji. And last but not least, it does have a 3.69 million dot OLED color electronic viewfinder. So it's interesting they didn't go for something a bit higher res because if you look at, say, the A7R4, that one has, I think it's 5.6 or 5.2 million dots, so quite a bit higher. Canon and Nikon, when they released their full-frame mirrorless bodies, they really picked up the ball in that, like set the bar a bit higher because they put in some really great EVS in there. I think, I know usually, I know for Sony anyway, the product differentiation EVFs are generally one of it. So if you look at the A7 III, it's got only like a 1.62 something million dollars. It's got a very, very poor quality EVF compared to the higher end models like your A7R III, A7R IV, A92. The funny thing is I actually don't mind the EVF on the A7 III. So when I look at my M5, then I go to the A7 III, it looks really good. Like the M5 is no slouch in terms of the EVF, but it is a lot smaller. When you look in at the EVF on the A7 III, you can see it's a lot larger a lot more detail, but it is, you know, not a very high resolution or great display. Then one day when I was at the airport on my last trip to New Zealand, I did try a, was it a Z6? It was a Z6 at the airport just for fun, you know, to see what it was like. Man, that thing ruined my EVF. As soon as I looked in the EVF to the Nikon, my Sony's EVF just looks like, <laughs> like garbage pretty much. It's so clear. It's so good. And considering the Z6 is their entry level body, like, you know, their equivalent to the A7 III, you know, Sony should really, really increase their um, EVF because I know they like to differentiate by that. But if Nikon and, you know, Canon, Panasonic, everyone offers really great EVFs in their entry level, Sony should really match that too. Everyone wants to say that Canon should match Sony, Nikon should match Sony, well, Sony should match them as well because in terms of ergonomics, Nikon and Canon generally get it really right. So in terms of this body, as mentioned, I'm not an APS-C person. I would like it, you know, to own something like this. But the problem I have it with it is the cost. So I know it retails for around $16.99 US dollars, but in Australia, it's actually $28.99. So if you think about it, not long ago, even now, you can get the Canon EOS R for around $2,300. And the their RF 35mm has been as cheap as about $400. So you, for pretty much the same cost or even actually a little bit less. You can get a full frame body with a lens compared to just the body by itself. You know, it is a great body. It definitely looks like built well, great quality. The images produced are beautiful. But to me, I always have to look at cost as a factor in that, especially if you're in a limited budget like myself, you cannot afford to just spend that much on a body only when you can get pretty much a kit for that same price. In saying that, obviously, all the other Fuji lenses, you know, they have a lot more lenses in comparison to the RF mount only. But if you look at it, Canon as a whole ecosystem, considering you can use EF lenses natively on the RF body in the R mount, then, you know, obviously Canon has a lot of options as well. But those Fuji bodies might be, uh, lenses, sorry, might be more cheaper and, you know, you don't have to adapt either as well in that sense. So it does balance out in a way you are paying more for the body, but cheaper for the lenses where at the moment Canon you'll be paying less for the body or you can get more expensive lenses if you want that native LRF glass. The next item that has been announced is the Sony 
FE 20mm f1.8 G ultra wide prime lens. So this is officially Sony's widest prime in their lineup, in their Sony Alpha lineup. It is quite an interesting lens. It seems that it, you know, isn't held as to a high regard as something like a 135. The reason I say this is because it seems review copies were sent out to all the YouTubers, whereas if you look at lenses like the 135, they actually held press events just for that, where they got to try it only at those events and had to review it later on. So who knows why they've done it, choose to do it this way, where in terms of production, they had it done a lot quicker compared to lenses like the 135. It's, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Maybe people may know something um, that I don't. In terms of the lens itself, it's quite small and compact. It's a little bit smaller than the 24mm GM, not a, by a huge amount, but it is definitely smaller. Just like the Sony 24mm GM, this 20mm always also has an aperture ring, which, you know, I'm always not a personally a fan of it. It's probably the one thing I don't like about my 24mm GM. It also has a focus hold button and autofocus, manual focus switch. Uh, looks quite nice. It, the build does look, it's pretty much just like a 24mm GM, just that tiny bit smaller. If you had the two without the badge, the only problem reason you could maybe tell the difference is that one, you know, the 24mm GM is a little bit bigger. But if you didn't know that the 24mm, ah, 24mm GM was that little bit bigger, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two. And, you know, your guess would be as big as, um, better as yours. Like, theoretically, I would think for the 20mm to be larger, but it is an F1.8 compared to an F1.4. Most of the early preview videos for this lens are quite promising. It does look really good. Once again, it's about $899. US um, over here, it's a lot, lot higher. It's $1699, so AUD that is. Now, just as a comparison, in Australia here, people expect the pricing to be US dollars to AUD plus GST, which is 10%. But, you know, I see people on forums. There's a local forum here called Whirlpool. People are saying on there, the, oh yeah, you know, it's a fair price. It's pretty normal compared to what it should be based on that. But no, no, no. It should be around 1350 So if you look at it from another way, let me pull something up here that I actually typed up a thing on this forum about. So to anyone listening here in Australia, here's a bit of an insight into it, okay? So we should not be paying USD to AUD plus GST. That is too high of a price. So for example, the 35 F1.8, that's 748 US dollars. So if you convert it straight to AUD, not even adding GST, that's 1140. Now at launch, this lens was 1099. I paid 1150, so the exact price. So that's not even adding GST. So technically, they you know don't need to charge that price. Straight conversion plus GST does not um, work out. You want more examples? The 35 Art. So if I look at B and H Photo and they don't have any sales, that lens is 899 USD. So now you can buy it in Australia, brand new, $9.99 US, AUD, sorry. I even bought it for $7.99 AUD on sale, which can go even down to $7.50 if you check on eBay at the right time when CR Kennedy, who is a Sigma authorized reseller in Australia, has their sales. So clearly it doesn't sort of apply. And even with bodies, if you think bodies might be different, the Canon 60 Mark II, when that first came out, that launched at $1,999 US dollars. Now, I bought that with an extra spare battery free of charge for 2,350 AUD. So that is way, way, way less than what the 
you know, conversion plus 10%. And ah, Australian dollars weak as anything at the moment. It's like one US dollars. Uh, so one AUD is 65 US cents. So, you know, we should be paying it significantly more if we do do the conversion, but we don't, you know. And when you think about it, say, I think Sony manufacture a lot of their goods in Thailand. So if you wanted to convert it, technically, whatever price it costs in Thailand, convert that, you know, times that, um, convert it to AUD, then add the GST, whatever. That would be more fair compared to US dollars because the lens actually isn't manufactured in the US. It's manufactured in Thailand. So they're paying, you know, labor at that Thailand rate and also they're paying materials in Thailand or theoretically unless they import it from China or somewhere else. And just for those who still aren't convinced, so you know, even the 24mm GM, that one sells at $13.99 US dollars. The standard price here is around 2178 which the USD to AED conversion would be 2132 I bought mine for 1850 So, you know, that's a lot lower than the conversion rate. So we should not be paying so much higher for lenses. As you can see, especially in case of the Sigma, we should be paying, you know, roughly the same amount as what they would, even though our dollar's worth different. You can remember it's not manufactured in the US, so we shouldn't be paying US to convert it to AUD plus GST. That's just way, way, way too high. Okay, so now we are on to our main topic. Today's main topic is, should you find a niche in photography? This is a topic that I've sort of gone over quite a bit, not on websites or anything, just in my head, like, I, you always hear that it's good to have a niche, good to have stick to one genre, don't be a jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing. But it's always something that I've still debated with myself. Do I really want to specialize in something, especially since I don't want to do professional photography? I don't want to do paid work. It's purely just a hobby for me. So first, it's probably best to just define a niche. So a niche is, you know, defined by the dictionary as something interesting to aimed at or affecting only a small number of people. So when you Google, you know, a niche in photography, most articles lead you to believe you can pick a niche, either say landscape, portraits, um, long exposures, product photography, still life, sports, you know, all that kind of stuff. Technically, these aren't niches. These are genres. So it's two completely different things here. If you look at it, one look at it one way, so a niche. So... My friend Joey, he loves blue hour, like he only shoots blue, well, not, he doesn't only, but he mainly shoots and specializes in blue hour cityscape photos. So that's his niche. So like cityscapes is the genre or urban landscapes are the genre. His niche in that is the blue hour only, the blue hour lighting. And if you look at it, someone who made, you know, portraits obviously is a wide genre, but someone who only does maybe, you know, portraits of kids dressed as superheroes and composites them to make it look like they're flying, that kind of stuff. That would be the niche. They do these kind of over-the-top composite portraits of just kids or something. Another example, you know, um, for still life, there's a few, lots of ones that I'll go into later, but you can have different genres. Like you can only shoot, you know, toys for still life. You only do fruit sort of thing. Only do objects that are reflective. Um, one really famous, or not famous, I don't know if he's famous, but popular photographer. His name is Vulture Labs on Instagram, 500px, Flickr. He does pure black and white street photography, like he only shoots black and white. So even though he does street, it's sort of like not as much of a niche as small specialized, but it is that in a way. So like anything, there are positives and negatives, you know, benefits and setbacks to doing or focusing on just one thing. What I think I do is I'll talk about the positive first, 
firsts. Um, so one of the main positives that really come to mind is the fact that you really master that genre and master that type of shooting. So as an example, a bit different, but when I used to only shoot with a 35mm lens, I wouldn't even need to sort of look through the viewfinder to know where to stand. Say I have a person standing somewhere, background's really nice, I know that I want the framing, you know, just a bit above their head, say like half a meter space above the negative space above their head, and it goes down to the middle of their waist. I would know exactly where to stand in what distance to be able to get that frame perfectly. The same can be said if you have your own niche. So say, for example, Joey with his Blue Hour Cityscapes, he knows exactly what skies would be good. He has his own rating system for when these skies are good. So, you know, say you're at home trying to decide if you should go out to shoot or not. He can look at the sky and know whether it's worth his time or not to go out and whether he's going to get those beautiful colors during that blue hour. Another benefit to it is also getting notice and getting attention. So especially if you have the aims of becoming a professional photographer, this can be a huge thing getting noticed. The first example that I'll give is Joel Robison. So he's a Canadian photographer known as Boy Wonder on Flickr. Most people would probably know him. If you've seen his images, you would definitely remember, know who I'm talking about. What Joel does is he's does these really crazy composites where he puts himself in real-life objects, so real-life photos. So, for example, one of them, because I like origami, one of the images that comes to mind is how he's had, um, you know, holding a, like, massive life-size, uh, what's it called, crane, like origami crane. crane. Maybe he built that, actually, but he's got these crazy ones where standing on top of a flower, um, you know, like normal nature scene, say a macro shot of a scene, whereas he's actually in the scene standing on the flower. All these kind of crazy stuff. So, he did some shots like that of Coke, and this photo by Coke, um, this photo that featured Coke and it got noticed, and he actually ended up getting sponsored to travel the world, um, you know, as part of this Coke tour and taking photos of it. So obviously that, you know, for him worked out really well. That was his niche doing those style of photos, and it worked out well for him. Another one, I don't know how famous he is, but I think most photographers would know him. His name is Adam Makarenko. So he was featured by Petapixel, I think it was maybe a year or so ago, I'll link to the article. He's, he makes these crazy, crazy still life photos of planets. So he makes everything from scratch. He will make the planets from scratch, the, like what looks like, you know, the, what's on the planet, say the Earth surface, the Mars surface, that kind of stuff, and does these still life shots to make it look like he's actually done some telescopic photo of planets. Now these photos look absolutely amazing. So for example, if we take it back to what I said before, still life is the genre, but his niche is doing these kind of planet photos. Like that's what his niche is. It's a small specialized thing that only he does. So pretty much that has worked out well for him. You know, he's been featured on Petapixel as well as I think F-Stop has featured him as well. You know, he's, as you can see, there's no real sort of negative in that sense to him doing that. He's got his work out there. He's got a lot of credit and a lot of, you know, praise for it which he rightfully should because it is amazing work in terms of negatives there's nothing no huge negatives really come to mind the main one i can think is if you're someone who you know just does it for fun you may get bored just shooting the same thing over and over again some people do enjoy it don't mind you know um not doing different stuff myself personally i've always been a type i get bored of something if i do it for too long so, you know, that's why I tend to just not stick to one genre. I just shoot whatever all the time. One, you know, when you see my uploads, it won't be like urban landscape, urban landscape, urban landscape, then 
Still life, still life, still life will be still life, urban landscape, portrait, still life, portrait, urban landscape. It will just be all over the place just because, you know, I shoot all over the place. But I guess as well in that sense, if you do do it, you know, for all you know, say you only shoot um, portraits and you think that portraits, you know, are your thing, that's all you should do, but you don't actually try other genres. For all you know, you could absolutely love, say, nature photography, like taking photos of birds could be what you actually really love and you're like say a you know 10 out of 10 portrait photographer but 10 you start taking photos of birds you're actually like a 20 out of 10 bird photographer you're even better at it so if you never actually give it that try then you never know what you like you know i think when you first start out especially even if you think you're most interested in portraits you owe it to yourself just to try everything even if it's just once try you know landscapes just once portraits just once still life just once just see what you like for all you know you might all enjoy it and every few years maybe after five years you feel like you're getting a bit bored of photography lacking inspiration or interest try again try something else see if you that interests you even more otherwise you know the big question is do you need to specialize you know for me i'd say the thing you need to look at is what are your goals like it comes back to just like reflecting on my photography what do you want to achieve from your photography do you want to be a professional photographer or do you want to just be a hobbyist that enjoys taking photos? If you just enjoy taking photos, do what you know you like doing. Don't limit yourself. If you want to be professional, having a niche and focusing on one genre and really mastering that genre, or even two or three genres, can really, really help you. For myself, I do kind of want to develop myself a niche. Um, you know, I have toyed with the idea of doing paid portraits, like couple portraits or graduation portraits to be exact. I don't know if or when I'll get around to doing that, maybe next year once I'm done with uni, but the other thing that really interests me is still life. I have a few ideas for stuff I could focus on, particularly in still life, like you know, like Dambo, Manenderoids, that kind of thing, creating them in scenes. A lot of people do do them and they do amazing work and build like these little sets. Like I've seen ones of Nenderoids, say like Witcher in the Bath, like they build a full, was it diorama? I'm too old for that, man. School's was a long, long time ago, but they built like a diorama to show, you know, the bad bedroom or everything, wherever he's taking a bath. But they go to a lot, a lot of effort, which I don't know if I had the patience or the creativity for that paper craft to be able to do it. But I have my ideas of what I might try. Who knows if I'll be able to actually stick to it and keep interest in it. But I think I, you know, keep saying should stick to just cityscapes that long exposures cityscapes as well as um something still life it's just i really have to figure out what i enjoy and what i like about it you know so that's a bit of a longer episode today and you know this pretty much sums everything up so when it comes to a niche just do what you know you enjoy doing and make sure you don't let anyone tell you you know any different on as to what you should be doing and what you enjoy Thank you for listening to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and our social links will be posted in the show notes.